My guest today is Dean Hall. Dean is a world record holding extreme distance swimmer, a two-time cancer survivor, a speaker, and a licensed marriage and family therapist. Dean's story is one of healing, identity, and connection to nature. And this episode is a little bit unique. I don't do much talking, and I basically sit back and facilitate this conversation in a way where my voice isn't interfering with Dean because we are filming and we are working together on a short film with two other filmmakers, Olivia and Amy. Shout out to you guys. And we will be documenting Dean's next major world record setting swim next year in 2020. And right now, making a little teaser video and beginning the process of finding sponsors and building out our creative vision. And this process today, um, a couple weeks ago now, of sitting down with Dean and getting him to tell his whole story in a way that is more complete than any of the previous conversations and podcasts that he's done. So without dragging on any more, let's jump right into it. Dean's story is incredible. Let's introduce Dean Hall. I think it's more fun if it's a conversation, don't you? Yeah, definitely. Or maybe not for what you're trying to accomplish. Just for the audio quality, like Mm -hmm. just making sure that there's not two tracks like trying to record over each other. That would be the only concern. But I I just won't uh, sniffle or cough or anything. (laughs) I might. (laughs) All right, Dean, it is... November 17th, 2019. We're wow. sitting down here with Dean Hall. Let's just start off with introducing yourself, your name, your age, where you're from, and what you do. Okay, my name is Dean Hall. I am almost 60 years old, turned 60 in March, and I'm a licensed clinical marriage and family therapist specializing in trauma and anxiety. But that's really not what I'm known for. What I'm known for is I'm a world record setting extreme distance swimmer. I was the first person to swim the entire length of the Willamette River in Oregon. It's Oregon's longest river. And uh, the longest river over in the British Isles in Ireland, the River Shannon. Yeah, I know. We're going to get into all that um, and kind of peel back the layers on why you do what you do and stuff like that. But um, where did you grow up and what was your childhood like in terms of the outdoors? Yeah, I grew up in Portland, Oregon, the son of two mountain climbers. Uh, There's an historic mountain climbing club in Oregon that is so Portland called the Mazamas. And I'm a third generation Mazama, almost fourth. Uh, Turns out my great grandfather was in it. But uh, he was never really a member because membership in the early 1900s wasn't a big deal. But uh, yeah, so both my mom and my dad climbed mountains. My mom claims it was just because she didn't want to be left behind. (laughs) But I don't think that's true at all. She's quite the adventurer. And so I had what I believe was really an idyllic childhood growing up in the Pacific Northwest. I tell everybody before there were adventure athletes, there were Oregonians. And my parents were certainly that. We spent all my summers uh, going out and hiking and backpacking and climbing in the Cascade Mountain Range. 
Uh, we did whitewater rafting before there was whitewater rafting in aluminum canoes, of all things. Uh, so it was just a, a fantastic childhood as far as I was concerned. Hmm. That's Yeah, I mean, the way you describe it is idyllic. And I, yeah, that does sound pretty idyllic. I look yeah, because in eyes. the 60s, I mean, yeah. that's how far back we're going. Yeah. Uh, it was wild and untamed. They're just, once we would get about 10, 15 miles from any trailhead, we wouldn't see anyone. And if we did, they were serious adventurers. And so as a kid, it just made me feel... Uh, so badass, you know, and I was just a, a funny, quirky little kid, but man, I, I thought I was something. <laughs> so you weren't necessarily complaining, mom, dad, I want to go home. You were actually, you felt like, you know, being a badass and being out there. That, like, That's the funny thing. I'm in the middle of three and to talk about it now, uh, my sister hated it. She absolutely hated it. And uh, once she got too old to really carry, <laughs> we didn't do it as much. Uh, and my brother hated it too, come to find out. Uh, he's just kind of an indoor accountant type. He's a math teacher now, very quiet, uh, very organized. Uh, but man, for me, it was a dream come true every time. So transitioning from your childhood um, through high school, mm -hmm. and then what led you to move out to Kansas? <laughs> Besides utter stupidity. <laughs> uh, yeah, I started playing a lot of soccer, and uh, always before, I my one dream was to become a world-class mountain climber or mountaineer, and I was on track with that. I, my dad was going to get me private lessons with the Mazamas and some of the best mountaineers up here in Seattle. You know, it's really a mecca for mountain climbing, especially back then. Um, but I fell in love with soccer. It just took everything over because it was the first time I ever encountered a sport when once you were out there playing it, the coaches really couldn't tell you what to do. It was free form. And to me, it felt like very physical chess. And so it was a thinking man's sport, too. Plus, uh, I had so much energy and probably uh, a bent or a penchant for violence <laughs> that uh, it was a place I could hit things and people and be hit and not get in trouble. And so uh, I just fell absolutely madly in love with it and uh, worked my way through uh, the youth system to where I got invited to be on the first ever. Uh, we didn't really call it the Junior Timbers. It was just an Olympic development youth enrichment team. Mm -hmm. But they took me twice to the UK and so we got to play and uh, meet guys in Liverpool, Manchester, and Birmingham, and Wolverhampton, the West Midlands, the hotbed of soccer back then. And so I got to travel. I got to play soccer. I just fell absolutely in love with it. It was everything. And so I had all these scholarships and uh, on a lark because I'm kind of crazy about American history. I, particularly Native American history, I thought I would love to go someplace close to 
Oklahoma and what used to be called the Indian Territories. And I found a tiny little college right in that area. And so my idea was go out there, play soccer, have fun, but scout around and go to some of these historic places and see if they're truly as terrible as they sound. And I found out they were probably even worse, especially if you were to take yourself back to those times. I mean, no rivers, no trees, no hills. It was like a moonscape. I was I was horrified that we'd take the indigenous peoples and just confine them to these areas. And I, I felt a bit of that because I felt like I was confined to an area. Right, right. <laughs> and so what exactly, how did you first hear about because everyone in the American school system mm-hmm. is educated. Did you go to public school? Yes. Yeah. So in public school, they kind of teach you the surface level about native uh, history and the Trail of Tears and some of the mm-hmm. way that the mm-hmm. the uh, colonial people came and just kind of had wars and kicked these people off their lands. But like, what was it specifically about that? That you, like, how did you really get a grasp on that to the point where you actually chose? to go to college in an area where you could kind of pursue that further? Well, I just have always been a curious learner. My parents uh, really, I think if they would have had homeschooling in that time, uh, I don't think they would have done it because they would have wanted me to be deeply immersed in the culture as well. But my mom especially is brilliant and a teacher at heart. And she was always reading to us. And every night at the dinner table, we would have discussions many times about history or deeper things. And then they would force me to watch the world news every night. And so they provided me, well, all of us, with a very deep, I feel, rich Um, community of being curious learners. And so I became very quickly what I term a readaholic. I just have to be reading four or five books at any time and fell in love with history and then our own American history. And I also consider myself a movie buff. And very quickly I noticed the depictions of Native Americans didn't fit uh, my understanding of history at all. And so even at 11 or 12, I started scratching my head and wanting to find out more. And uh, then I just became obsessed with the Civil War and the impact of that. And uh, so just, you know, bleeding Kansas and all of that. And so I just really became interested. And that was kind of, it wasn't a main pursuit, but it was in the back of my mind as I looked at these scholarships. Several of them were along the West Coast and I traveled there. So I was looking for someplace else. And then the other ones were on the East Coast, but not in areas that were rich historically. And then a couple were in Chicago that didn't seem very appealing. So I, on a lark, I picked this tiny little college in Kansas, not knowing that I would meet my first wife there. She was very 
into and, and very close to her family. And so she let it be known early on in our relationship that she wasn't moving back to Portland just because that's where I came from. Mm-hmm. You're probably like a big city boy compared oh, to out there. It, it was so <laughs> funny because I'd always thought of myself as the good kid. And, um, you know, Portland at that time was big, but not that big. And then I get in this tiny little area. And just because I was from the West Coast and it was a Christian college, uh, I was the wild West Coast kid. And I, I kind of tried to play the part. I don't think I did it very well. Um, but uh, yeah, so that was talk about I had so much more of a culture shock going from Portland to the Midwest than I ever did going from Portland to the UK. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. So you spent after college, you spent how, how long did you spend in Kansas? <laughs> Several lifetimes. And you built your practice there. Right. Talk me through that kind of right. that journey. Um, that I of graduated. Life. And I, I felt like I had such a love for youth, I thought maybe that I should become a youth minister. And so I tried that for six months, but the politics of the church combined with my immaturity, plus my constant questioning of everything, uh, didn't make me a good fit for a church atmosphere. They didn't want me to question And so uh, I decided the most practical form of youth ministry or or caring for youth would be a public school teacher. So I became an art teacher, art and American history. And I taught middle school for 20 years doing exactly that, mostly art, and just had a wonderful time. Probably would have stayed there if I didn't feel like I was assigning myself to poverty. And so about four or five years into my teaching career, I started looking, how could I still be of service, but uh, not be poverty stricken? And that's when I realized all I've ever really wanted to do was be a therapist. And so I spent a year uh, job shadowing many different forms of therapy and uh, found that marriage and family therapy was a really good fit for what I wanted to do. And so I worked my way at night through a master's degree in that and uh, spent 13 years doing both and then continued to build um, a very thriving practice in a small town of 13,000 where people said, I couldn't. And I think the fact, and that's kind of a, a recurring theme in my life, when people say I can't do something, then I just kind of have to. And so that's that's what I did. 33 years that I was there in uh-huh. Kansas in uh-huh. total. And uh, let me see, 20, uh, right at 20 years that I was a therapist there. So which year did you graduate college? This is just for my own timeline understanding. 1983, I graduated okay. the first time with my first bachelor's. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so you were going through, and I, this is what I was talking to you about when we were, when you, we took that break, but like I'm very interested in this ability to transition in your career mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. it takes effort. You had to go to school at night. You had to make sacrifices, I'm sure. Like it wasn't an easy transition, but you did it. And then looking yeah, back it, on it. it, I did it without even thinking about it because my parents, you know, were both raised during their early years were during the depression. 
And so as my dad got more and more successful and he rose to the top of uh, an international corporation, and so he was making a lot of money, he was afraid, both of them were afraid that their boys would become spoiled little rich kids. Hmm. And so from the time we were eight or nine, we had to spend our summers out with the migrant workers picking berries. And from the time I was 15 on, I either was going to school and had a job or had two jobs or had two jobs and was going to school. When I quit teaching in 2002, for about a month, I felt really off. Um, and I, I, it just constantly felt like something was wrong. And then Mary and I figured out it was the first time since I was 15 that I hadn't had more than one job. And so transitions weren't, I, I, and I think it's pretty typical of my generation, we really didn't think about transitions. We just thought about what we had to do. I see. Yeah, we weren't as conscious as generations that follow us mm. about that. We just had our heads down and we're plowing forward. Yeah, it sounds like your parents were either against the grain a little bit or just ahead of the curve in some way because a lot of, from my perspective, a lot of families or people that they come into wealth, then they want to make sure their kids never have to do anything. And I was praying for that, (laughs) (laughs) but that wasn't going to happen. Yeah. 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 I mean, looking back on it, I'm sure it formed the man that you are in some ways. I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. At, At the time it was like, why can't I just play baseball like everybody else during the summer? Come on, mom. Come on, dad. And, uh, you know, it, 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 in some ways, I look back on it now, and it was kind of a polar childhood, especially as I got into my teen years, because we would have these European vacations, and I'd have to let my summer employers know that I was taking off the whole month of July or something and going to Europe with my parents. And then I'd come back and do these almost slave labor type jobs and uh, be with the lowest um, economic group in our society. And so it, it was a little confusing at times, but I think it helped me to understand people a little bit more. Plus, always be thankful for what they afforded me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I can relate to that a little bit playing basketball across the bridge growing yeah. up as a kid, right? Like living on this island, all my friends, you know, they've got two parents and food and food and shelter and you go across the bridge and the guys on your team don't necessarily have those things. And so I, I growing up, I had a similar, probably not to the same degree of working all summer, but like trying to kind of put this, this difference into my understanding of the world. And, right. the, you know, so it's, I think if I look back on it as incredibly valuable growth lessons, right. And I think we have to expose ourselves this is one of the reasons why I preach traveling so mm-hmm. much, but yeah, I, I think, uh, and first time, uh, the Timbers took me over, I was 16 and it just opened my mind like and of course I'd read everything because the first time we went over as a family I was 15 and my parents deny this now but and maybe I was the only one that really believed it I haven't talked to my brother or my sister but uh, for months before we went we would watch old eight millimeter travel films and because this was way before video and then we would also 
talk about National Geographic articles about the history of the places that we were going. And they had me convinced that if I wasn't knowledgeable about these areas, they wouldn't take me. And I don't know if that really happened, but that was my perception. And so I really dove into these history of these places. And that was so wonderful because when I got there, even though I was a crazy 15 year old, I was so thrilled to be in these places like where the Battle of Hastings happened and the Normans came over. It just it just felt thrilling Mm. to have that knowledge. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, that's uh, I'm starting to learn more and more about you, Dean. (laughs) So let's um, let's go to the day, the first day that you ever were diagnosed with cancer. Do you remember where you were? Yeah, I I certainly do. Um, One of my best friends in this small town was the chief physician of the local hospital. And he was a funny guy, really enjoyed him, uh, just brilliant man. And he was under so much stress and that he would come in once or twice a month. And as a clinical hypnotherapist, I would help him get into a nice deep theta state and work out physically the emotions that had just uh, built up in him, kind of de-stress him once or twice a month. Well, you know, you have to remember, put this in context, that I taught, been a teacher there for 20 years. And so almost everyone that was in a service position in this community, I taught and loved. And so um, my daughter was just talking about it yesterday. She said it was so disappointing toward the last couple of years because all these kids had grown up. And so when we went to like a fast food restaurant, we wouldn't be comped our food. She's like, I hated it when we had to start paying. But uh, I went and took a blood test because I was getting a total knee operation. This was right around Christmas. It was four days before Christmas, 2006. And I was going to have a total knee on my left knee because I'd had a huge soccer accident back when I was in college. Um, and just totally destroyed my knee and had been waiting for decades uh, to get old enough to finally repair this knee. And so I, I knew I was tired, but I was working 80 hours or more a week all on my own, many times managing folks who were suicidal. I mean, I was busy. And so I really didn't think of, you know, I, I didn't consider that maybe the extra fatigue was anything wrong with me. So I went in and took the pre-surgical blood test. And one of the nurses whom I'd had her kids in, in school called me up and she said, oh, Dean, your blood test came back bad. Well, I'd never really been sick. So automatically, and of course I was in kind of a hurry, that's what I tell myself, but it never occurred to me that I was sick. So I just assumed that one of my old students who had been the tech had fouled the test. And so I said, oh, well, don't get anyone in trouble. It's okay. And she said, what? And I said, huh? She said, no, your blood test came back bad. I said, I know, I know, but um, don't fire anybody over it. I'd be glad to come back in. Just tell me when. She said, well, um, okay, just come back in. And so I came back in, took the blood test again. They're taking the, they're drawing the blood out of me. Still not occurring to me that something's wrong with me. I'm just telling everybody again and even talk to the tech. I'm like, hey, you know, it's certainly okay. Don't worry about it. And she looked at me and she said, okay, Mr. Hall, glad to know. 
Um, but nobody said anything. And then that night, um, Aaron Waters is his name. Dr. Waters came in. He, he uh, called me up first and he says, hey, when are you done? And I said, uh, I think it was like late nine or 10 that night. And he says, well, I'll come into your office. And I said, oh, okay, I'll take time for you. Still not thinking it had to do with my blood test. I thought, well, he just has to de-stress. So he came in and he looked white as a sheet. And I thought, wow, what has happened to Aaron? And so as soon as I opened my office door, I'm like, wow, Aaron, what's going on? He, I said, what can I do for you? He's like, it's not what you can do for me, Dean. It's what I got to tell you. And I thought, oh, no, is he in a lawsuit? Has he screwed up somehow? What, what's happened You're to Aaron? And still haven't caught no, on. Yeah. Now, sometimes I'm not the quickest guy, <laughs> especially when it comes to me. So we sat down. And he said, Dean, uh, what I'm here to tell you is that you, your blood test came back worse just about than I've ever seen. You've got leukemia. You, uh, it's got both features of acute and chronic. We've never seen this before. I've called a couple of oncologist friends. They've looked at it. They say if this doesn't switch in the next couple of days, it's terminal and quick this is bad. And I went into such shock. My first thought was, oh, good. Aaron hasn't screwed up and is in a lawsuit. <laughs> wow. And so I'm like, oh, good. And he's like, what do you mean, oh, good? And I said, what? And he said, Dean, they think maybe you got six weeks. He said, we don't know, but we just got to pray and hope that this switches to chronic rather than acute or God forbid stays both. He says, you're in trouble, man. And then it hit me like a sledgehammer. I thought I got a 14 year old girl. Uh, I don't know if you've been around 14 year old girls lately, but 14 year old girls need their daddies as far as I'm concerned. I thought I, I got to do whatever I need to do to stay alive. And so it was it was really tough. Thankfully, within about a week, week and a half, it switched to chronic leukemia, but it decimated me. And this was four days before Christmas. So Christmas 2006 wasn't real great. And uh, I don't remember most of 2007. I was on the couch most of 2007. Um, it decimated my immune system and my metabolism so much so that it, I was finding on many days that I had done a lot of triathlons in the 90s. And I, I love endurance, how you crawl back and find that one place in your brain where you don't think you can keep going, but you access it and you, you keep yourself moving. And I was finding I was having to use that same muscle just to get out of bed, walk five steps to the bathroom. And when I realized I was using that same technique, I thought, man, I'm in trouble here. And so it was, it was a really tough time. Uh, but toward 2008, I started getting better then summer of 2008, because my immune system was so decimated, I contracted pneumonia and almost died of pneumonia in July of 2008. 
Uh, I don't remember July really at all. All I remember is thinking this is a terrible way to die because I couldn't breathe. And then I'd start just coughing and gasping for air and then pass out and then wake up, maybe get two full breaths and start it over again. I knew I was in trouble then when I don't, I remember passing out, but I don't remember anybody coming to get me and waking up in the hospital with Aaron, the same doctor standing over an IV. And I looked at him and I was shocked that I was in the hospital. It took me a time to, it took me a bit of uh, time to orient, but I looked up in his eyes and I saw he was scared. And this is a guy that grew up in Kansas and Oklahoma, is a rancher. This is a tough guy. And I thought, oh, man, if he's scared, I'm in trouble. And I'm like, hey. And he's like, oh, hey, how are you? I'm like, I'm fine until I looked in your eyes. He's like, what do you mean? I said, you look scared. And he's like, no, I'm not scared. I'm like, Aaron, you're scared. And he's like, well, all I'm going to say is you just have to fight you, you got to fight. You're in trouble, Dean. You got to fight. I'm like, I can do that. Um, and so I got, I worked my way back to getting better. By November of 2008, I was doing manageably or markedly better and kind of managing my life. And then uh, 2009 was really quite good. And then 2010, uh, is when my world kind of dropped out from under me. And uh, what happened in 2010? Well, uh, starting along about Labor Day of 2009, uh, Mary, my wife, uh, started having carpal tunnel syndrome, and she had been uh, a whirlwind of energy. Uh, she only had, my friends used to kid that she only had two speeds, extremely fast and asleep, because she'd sit down for a movie and within three minutes be asleep. It was hilarious. And she could get stuff done faster than anybody I knew. Her friend used to joke that Mary could solve world peace before she could get on her shoots. Um, that's just how fast she was. She was just wound really tight. And she started taking naps. And I thought that was a bit curious. But I thought, well, you know, she's moving toward... Uh, she's 50 now and moving toward, uh, you know, the menopausal years, things are changing. And so maybe she's just finding more balance. I, I thought it was a good sign. And this carpal tunnel kept getting worse and they kept looking at it, couldn't figure out what was going on. And then uh, I bought an, uh, in June of 2010, it was almost a mirror image of what had happened to me in 2008. Mary got pneumonia. And this is not, I, looking back now, this is fairly common for rural areas in the Midwest. Uh, I think it has to do with the humidity and the heat and harvest and all the grain and, uh, you know, dust in the air but i'm wondering too if it's all the pesticides um, it's not unusual for people to get pneumonia at that time and she did and she just slept a lot and just didn't seem to get better 
And, but we, you know, visible signs looking back of a brain tumor now, we should have probably noticed uh, the sleepiness. Uh, she kind of had uh, little spells of dizziness, but they weren't severe. She didn't have any headaches, which is a typical thing with a brain tumor. Uh, she had some memory lapses, but we just thought, you know, I did too when I was coming out of pneumonia. So we really didn't think brain tumor at all. And then I bought a car in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which was about an hour and a half, two away. And I was driving it back and I had a sandwich on the passenger seat. I was all by myself and it was like 108, 110 back there. And the air conditioning went out of this new car as I was driving it back. So I thought, well, get home. I'll call them up. They'll fix it. I'll have to go all the way back down there. And I get home and Mary's still sick. So I made her something to eat and um, ate the rest of the sandwich, not thinking that it had been in a plastic box in 108 or 10 degree heat with mayonnaise. And uh, that night I got an extremely severe case of food poisoning. And uh, it was actually kind of funny if food poisoning can be funny because I'm sitting there with a couple and I start uh, my organs and my core started uh, fibrillating. And I thought, oh, my gosh, because I, you know, growing up mountain climbing and jumping into these alpine lakes, I experienced a lot of hypothermia. I thought, oh, my gosh, I'm going into hypothermia. And then I'm like, wait a minute, it's 110 out. It's probably 80 degrees in here. There's no freaking way I'm going into hypothermia. I thought, what's going on? And then I just broke out into this profuse sweat. And I'm hoping they're not noticing that I'm sweating through my clothes. And so I limped through that session, canceled all the rest of mine, went home, and boy, it hit. I'm going through having these cold chills to just burning up and soaking through all the bed sheets, and it's not getting better. The next day, it's not getting better, so I send Mary and Bree to her mom's so I can just handle this, and I'm not the kind of guy that's ever really even taken ibuprofen, and so I looked at the ibuprofen bottle, and it said, take two every four hours. Well, no one ever told me that I'm not supposed to take it for more than a day or two at that regularity. And so I did, and I kept getting worse instead of better. And at uh, day six, I'm still alone in this big house by myself, just in agonizing pain. Everything's hurting, continuing to have these cold chills and these sweats, still not going to the doctor, you know, because why do I need to go to a doctor? I'll just tough it out, right? And then on a Sunday morning, I just started vomiting. And I don't know if it's a guy thing or if it's a Dean thing, but when I start vomiting, and maybe this is too much information, um, or maybe it's an old jock thing, I'm counting, okay? So later I can tell my buddies, yeah, I threw up 10 times, you know, I don't know. It's silly, but I threw up 23 times and after about 10, I started getting alarmed because this weird 
kind of amber looking syrupy stuff started coming out of me and I thought this isn't normal and so I called up I didn't know who to call I should have called my doctor friend or anybody or gone to the hospital but instead I call up my dear sweet old mother in Portland Oregon 2,000 miles away she's got a best friend that lives across the street who's an old uh, life nurse and uh, the nurse said oh my gosh Uh, this can't be good. It could be renal failure. It could be all sorts of things. Have him go to the emergency room. So I drove myself to the hospital and, uh, the resident, he was, he was like six, four, he was huge, but he was frenetic. He was acting really scared. And I thought, well, this is stupid. Why is he? Because I, I knew I was sick, but I didn't know how sick. So I called up my doctor friend here and I'm like, you know, this guy's acting goofy. I'm just walking out. I'll pay later. Just tell him that I, I'm not up to this. And he's like, Dean, he just called. You're in total renal failure. You need to stay. Well, uh, that kind of alarmed me. He said, well, you could die if you leave. We need to get you on immediate IVs, find out what's going on. Well, so I was really sick in that hospital for a couple days. They sent me up to an ICU in Wichita and I was there for another six days and they went through my body trying to figure out what had happened until they brought in a this amazing genius uh, specialist on the kidneys from the Czech Republic. I loved this guy. He was one of the most brilliant men I'd ever met. He would go through all the stats, read everything and about 27 patients that he was seeing that day, and he could remember verbatim anything he'd read on 27 people. And he never looked at any notes. And finally he said, did you take any Advil? And I said, yeah, I took two every four hours for six days. And he's like, there it is. He's like, you would have been fine if you hadn't taken anything. I tell this long rambling story, sorry, to tell you that I got really, really sick. And finally, when I got out, Mary's face had dropped and it was alarming and her speech was a bit garbled. And so I called up Aaron again. I said, man, Mary's face has dropped and her speech is garbled. And so we went to her doctor. Her doctor thought maybe it was something called Meniere's disease. But I said, Aaron, we need to get her in for, uh, you know, an MRI, find out what's going on. So we did the next day. I was still so sick. We had to have one of Mary's best friends drive us up. And when she was doing the MRI, I will, you know, sometimes it's not good that I've been watching people for 30 years. I... I noticed the technician was acting a little too friendly and it, it, it made me nervous. And so I stopped her and I said, Hey, what's going on? So nothing, nothing, everything's fine, but we're going to have to take the test again. I'm like, no, you're not. Something's up. I said, what's up? Tell me. She said, oh no, no. Um, your doctor will call you. And I thought, Oh boy, friendliness plus the doctor will call me. We're screwed. And so we took this thing and uh, the friend is driving us home, and Aaron calls. And he's like, Dean, uh, when do you get home? I thought, oh, no, that can't be good news because he wants to see me in person. I said, Aaron, it's an hour till we're home. You really going to make me wait? He's like, no, 
but Mary's got one of the largest brain tumors we've ever seen. There are ganglia wrapped all around her brain stem. Um, I'm calling in some favors. The world's number three brain surgeons up in Kansas City. Uh, I'm, I know him personally. I think I can get you guys in in a couple days. He's like, it's not good. Ah, jeez. So a couple days later, we had another friend drive us six hours up to Kansas City, and the brain surgeon looked at it, reviewed the film. He had, by then, Mary's having a hard time walking. And so they wheeled her out, and they said, Dean, even with a laser-guided surgery, there's an 80% will nick, 80% chance will nick a blood vessel, and she'll bleed out on the table. At least a 50% chance will nick a nerve, and she'll lose all feeling from the neck down. Um, but we might be able to get out at least 50% of the brain tumor. I said, what then? He said, well, best case scenario, we don't do either of those. We get 50%. And then you go down to MD Anderson, do massive amounts of chemo and radiation, and maybe that will get another 30%, but at least 20% will be there forever and will probably kill her. I said, well, what would the life expectancy then be? He says, probably only another six months. And I said, what would her quality of life be? And he said, well, imagine what it'd be like to have the worst migraine you can imagine and the flu at the same time, plus maybe no feeling she'd have to... um, very possibly adjust to being a quadriplegic. I said, that doesn't sound like a high quality life for another six months. I said, what if we don't do anything? He said, well, um, she'll get more, she'll continue to lose her abilities and she'll sleep more and more and she'll die in her sleep. I said, will she be in much pain? He said, where it is, no, probably not. I said, okay, that's what we do. And he said, you're being really calm. And I said, well, you and I both know it's shock. But what else am I, you know, what else am I going to do? And so that's what we did. And 52 days later, she was dead. 15 days before our 30th anniversary. And the shock of it uh, just shattered me. Because I realized that my whole life, having moved to her town, even though I'd taught there for 20 years, been a therapist there for another 20, um, that my whole adult identity was wrapped up in being Mary's husband. Even after Mary died, people would see me on the street and they'd say, oh, there's Mary's husband. And it would make me break down because I wasn't Mary's husband anymore. And so I, I realized who am I without her? Uh, As an adult, I'd never asked that question. And so uh, it really shattered me. And I became the grief of that and the loss of that. uh, I became very confused, really angry for the first time in my life. Uh, I'd always been the good kid making good practical decisions. And I kind of went a little wild doing dumb stuff. Like what? Oh, just... Uh, I started dating only like five months after Mary was dead. And I'd seen guys do this and thought, how can you be that stupid? But I was just really angry. Uh, And angry at her family was very dysfunctional. 
And uh, so they were blaming me for her death, which happens the more dysfunctional. You know, when something tragic happens, the quickest way to establish emotional and psychological order, the subconscious will assign blame. Kind-hearted people blame themselves. Mean-spirited people blame others. It's something that happens almost without exception uh, during a tragedy or a trauma. So they blame me. And uh, in this small town, the things they said, uh, I mean, her mother and her sister even made a campaign uh, to ruin my business and to ruin my reputation. And I was shocked. I'd been a part of this family for 30 years and and tried to make things work. And I, so talk about adding insult to injury. It, it was just too much. And I knew that uh, I would never be anything in this small town but Mary's husband. And yet, my practice was booming. And so it made no sense to close up shop and move back home. But once I found out I had leukemia, and this time it brought with it its best friend lymphoma, I thought, yeah, I'm going home. And even if it's just going home to die, I'd rather die in this beautiful place that I've been homesick for for 30 years with the people I love than this town. And and not to put down the town, the town was wonderful, and I, I still to this day miss many of those folks and, and deep friendships that I had there. But it had more to do with family dynamics and, mm-hmm. and just my terrible loss. Yeah. So if you were to go back to your life in Kansas, would you ever be able to imagine your current life today? No. (laughs) That's, you know, uh, all of my social media uh, is under the guise of swimming in miracles. And uh, some people make this mistake to think that that has to do anything with swimming. And it really doesn't. The, the phrase came to me way before I even thought about swimming the Willamette. Because what really turned me around is when I ran into that Einstein quote that he said, uh, there are only two ways to live your life. One is as if nothing is a miracle. The other is as if everything's a miracle. And at the time I read it, I was down to 159 pounds. The biggest thing on me were my lymph nodes. I was dying. I'd lost my wife, lost my practice, lost all my friends, uh, or at least moved away from them. And uh, for the first time in my life since I was in my early 20s renting, um, totally isolated. And uh, when I read that, I said a few choice words to Einstein uh, and about him, slammed my laptop laptop so hard that it almost broke the screen. But it was what I call a Velcro quote. It just stuck with me. And then I thought, number one, maybe, just maybe Einstein is a little smarter than I am. And But number two, maybe this is the turnaround thought or paradigm that will bring me back to life that I had been hoping for for the last month or two. Last month or two, I don't know if you know it, but the brain by its very nature has to answer every question you ask. And so I was asking, what spiritual dynamic or psychological motto or mantra could I grasp onto to turn my life around? 
in nothing. I searched the scriptures. I searched spiritual teachings. I read, uh, got back to many of the founding fathers of psychology or deep uh, self-help or spiritual um, leaders, and it was just nothing. And then I ran across this one quote, and so I thought, yeah, well, it couldn't hurt me. I'm already at the bottom. And so I decided to give it a two-week trial run. Everything, everything is a miracle. And so even if uh, the guy in front of me is texting and making me miss the green light, how could that be a miracle? That was my constant question. How is this a miracle? And believing that if I can't see how it is, I just don't have a deep enough insight into how this world and this universe works. And within two days, it had changed my life. I knew it was something I wanted to make a commitment to. And it is a radical commitment to view life as such. But anytime early on that I got really weak on it, I would read incredible facts about the human body. And I started learning stuff like if you took the vascular system and lined it all up end to end, all the way from the aorta to the capillaries in the adult human body, it could wrap around the world three times. Um, you know, and just amazing things that are, have to happen every day just inside this thing we call the human body that we take terribly for granted just to get up or just to breathe that are miraculous. And so I started learning how to approach everything as a miracle. And it's, I believe it's a lifelong pursuit. Uh, there are so many times, even recently, I'll tell Bobby, yeah, I'm swimming in miracles now um, because I'm grouchy or uh, looking with very limited insight or some of my old mental habits are cropping back up. But it's, it's something I go back to time and time again. And that started to change everything. And so my life now, even though it's not perfect, I think the miracle is that it doesn't have to be. And things are happening that I would never have imagined, uh, like finding that old journal that I was forced to keep in sixth grade that said I had to do two things, climb Everest and swim the English Channel when I became an adult. And I knew I couldn't, couldn't climb Everest because my body was so decimated and I didn't have the money. But I, I just, and I don't know, this is probably one of the greatest miracles. It never occurred to me that I couldn't swim the English Channel. <laughs> and so that's what brought me into the swimming. I thought, you know, if I'm going to die, and I was pretty sure that at that point in August of 2013 that I was, how can I die swinging for the fence and leave my daughter with a legacy of hope and courage? Because her mom died so quickly, they didn't even really get to say goodbye. And her mom left her with a legacy of love, but not a lot of hope. I mean, it was so sudden and so traumatic. And she was so sick that I think if Mary would have had a longer cancer journey, she would have left Brie with courage, but it just was so quick there was none of that either. 
And so I thought, if that's all I can do, and even if I die swimming the English Channel as an active cancer patient, it teaches my daughter that you never give up. And so I started swimming, even though my family and friends thought I had lost my mind. And my doctors said that uh, even Aaron, I called him up and he's like, you know, you get in a public pool, it'll kill you. Your immune system's so depressed. But I said, what do you want me to do? Sit on a couch and die watching Wheel of Fortune? Uh, No offense to Vanna White, but that's not what I'm going to do. And so it didn't really even occur to me that I was gambling my life the first time I got in. But I got in in August of 2013. Took me over an hour to swim 11 laps, but it felt wonderful. I remember in between laps, I'd be kind of laying my arms and head on the pool deck, just gasping for air. And especially after the 11th lap, I knew I couldn't do one more, but I felt free. I felt like myself for the first time since Mary died. I felt excited about something. And so I just started swimming every day. And within a month, month and a half, all my numbers started going in the right direction. My head started to clear. I started to get muscle tone, started to put weight back on, started feeling, having just brief moments every day where I didn't feel totally depressed and what I called at the time tortured. Um, But I have a tendency to be a bit melodramatic. And so uh, long about November, one poignant moment, I'm getting out of the pool and just like a shot, the thought hits me, who cares if another middle-aged man puts on a Speedo and swims to France? It does the world no good. And then the very next thought was, and in my case, it's not even going to be a pretty picture. So I thought, you know, my whole life has been a pursuit of adding value to my community and to others. So I started asking, how can I do the same thing and do the world some good? And I thought, well, don't wait till I'm done with cancer. Do it as an active cancer patient. To inspire other cancer patients, you don't have to give up your dreams or your drive simply because you've received a diagnosis. And I got really excited about that, so I Googled how many active cancer patients have done a marathon event and uh, not even swimming. I couldn't find one. So I thought, okay, that's credible. And, and then I double-checked to see if any active cancer patients have ever, had ever swum the English Channel. Not one. But I tried to get excited about it, but it just didn't have that same fire. And so I started asking, okay, what could I swim And as soon as I asked it, even the first time, I remembered uh, a real interesting moment that had happened in uh, 1984. I'd come out for a bicycle race, and in the 80s, the Willamette, uh, our largest river in Oregon, that had been so terribly polluted in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and finally in the 70s, Our governor, Tom McCall, really started making a push to clean up all of our environment, but especially what I call Mama River, the Willamette, and change it from just a continuous oil slick to something back, trying to reclaim it as much we could. 
I thought that would never happen, but I was shocked to see in 1984 how blue and beautiful and vibrant this river looked and and seeing wildlife on the river, uh, ducks and geese and other waterfowl. And so I, I said to my dad, hey, anybody ever swum this whole thing? He's like, that is the dumbest idea I've ever heard. Well, you'd have to know the dynamic between my dad and I. I don't know. Maybe it is with every son and dad. But once he said it, it was like a challenge. I knew that's what I had to do. And so even in 1984, at the age of 24, I thought, okay, that's what I'm going to do. So I started planning it even then. Um, Went back home. And this is what all too often happens with dreams. I got home, got out maps, started pouring through it, planning each stage of the swim, how much it would cost. And in 1984, the whole swim I felt could be done for about $1,500. And that doesn't seem like much now. But to a 24-year-old who's married and trying to think about buying a house, um, yeah, it was quite a bit of money. And my wife, uh, you know, who was always supportive, but finally she sat me down and did an intervention. She's like, Dean, what are you doing? And I'm like, oh, I'm planning this great adventure. She's like, Dean, we need a down payment for a house. I'm like, oh, we can figure that out. She's like, Dean, you're going to have to take a month off from work. How are we going to pay our bills? And then I was like, oh, I guess this isn't very reasonable or responsible. And I've now come to believe that that is the greatest killer of most dreams, being reasonable and responsible. Because when you get a dream big enough, it never at first seems reasonable nor responsible. But I have come to believe that when you go for a big dream, it is the most reasonable, most responsible choice you can make. Because swimming the Willamette as an active cancer patient, which is what I did in June of 2014. It took me 22 days swimming, especially the first two weeks in 40 degree water, uh, 10, 12 miles a day, was the best thing that ever happened. And one of the reasons I say that is at that time, I didn't know about the theory of the blue mind when I swam it which has now become a standard treatment for trauma, which I definitely had, all the signs of it. Uh, The theory of the blue mind is that when you're in, on, around, under, or by water, your brain chemistry changes and it relaxes all your body systems and it helps you deal with the trauma by just bringing all those uh, stress hormones down. Wallace J. Nichols popularized it in his best-selling book, The Blue Mind. Hadn't read it, didn't know about it. And then I didn't know anything about cold water immersion, how when you're in a slightly hypothermic state in cold water, particularly natural waters, uh, it boosts your uh, immune system, boosts your metabolism, regulates sugars, regulates hormones, does all sorts of wonderful things for energizing the mitochondria. Um, I was just swimming a river trying to partner with the Leukemia Lymphoma Society to do a fundraiser and and prove to my daughter you don't have to give up. That's all I was thinking about. Swam the river, had a wonderful time. And then uh, a couple months later, I took 
my first blood test. I knew I was feeling better, but I just thought it was riding the high over accomplishing a world's first. Because how many people can say they're the first person in history to have accomplished something? So that was uh, just something that was a um, uh, very, very satisfying. Not so much an ego thing as much as, yeah, I, my life's finally got some good in it, some happy moments, something I can be proud of again. Because after Mary died, I'd act, acted in ways that were so antithetical to my belief systems that I'd even lost um, my feeling of my own integrity. And so I felt like I had that back, which was such a gift. Lo and behold, uh, at that first blood test, we found that the leukemia was gone. Uh, and the type of leukemia, chronic lymphocytic leukemia, all my doctors had always told me, you will have it the rest of your life, no matter what we do. Our job is to help you manage it. Someday it will kill you. And it was gone. So uh, that was absolutely miraculous. The other thing that happened was I noticed I was in constant grief. I was hopeful again. I felt like myself only a better, stronger, more settled version of myself than I'd ever been. And I think it was because of the 22 days on the river. I, I think you're probably right about that. <laughs> so that leads really nicely into a question around um, what is your connection between mental health and nature? Well, having grown up the way I did, I always noticed my dad was super stressed out. That why That's the reason I didn't pursue getting into some kind of executive or corporate career because I saw the dynamics of that in real life, in real time, and how that affected his life. But I noticed anytime we were out hiking or climbing, within hours, he was back to his old, fun, energetic self. And after days, he was peaceful again. And so I'd seen that firsthand growing up and then experienced it several times. I used to say, I'm just never as much me as when I'm in the woods. Um, and, and so that had always kind of been in the background. In the early 2000s, a field in psychology called eco-psychology had start, started to burgeon, and I'd been fascinated to read about that, but there wasn't a lot of research. It was more anecdotal, and, but I'd been thinking about it a lot. When I swam the Willamette, when I noticed how I felt constantly immersed, not only in nature, but in the river itself, and what was happening to my mood and even my trauma and uh, my ability to absorb everything that had happened without getting overly emotional or doing what I call freaking it out and freaking out and shoving it away. I, I was curious. I didn't know if it was kind of this... Uh, runner's high only for a swimmer because I was swimming so much. I knew I was oxygenating my body so much that I was getting a lot of uh, serotonin, a lot of endorphins. I thought maybe it was that. But 
after the swim, when I do a speech, I think it was the second talk I gave around town. Lady came up and she's like, have you read The Blue Mind? No, I never heard of it. She's like, oh, you got to read it. And when I read it, it, I immediately went and picked up a copy. And when I read it, uh, it was like reading my diary. And I thought, ah, this explains it. And so from then on, I've just been absolutely fascinated with not only uh, the physical effects of what happens to our bodies when we're out in nature, but what happens to our mind, and I believe even our spirits. I believe the reason, and, and this is one of the tenets of eco-psychology, the reason we're all so addicted, depressed, and anxious is because we're out of our in natural habitat or environment. Um, one author said we live uh, in concrete jungles, in climate-controlled boxes, and uh, with Wim Hof and others that are promoting not only eco-psychology but cold water immersion, his whole idea is why we're so anxious, depressed, and our immune systems are so poor as we're constantly in in climate-controlled boxes. And in order to be strong, uh, just like building a muscle, you have to stress it. Building the immune system, you have to stress it. And I believe even building a resilient uh, psychological or emotional state, you've, you've got to push yourselves. And that just doesn't happen in our safe, nice little buttoned-up world. Very well said, Dean. Very well said. So um, from your experience, you're probably... A lot of people, you know, trying to understand some of the trends in today's society. But from your professional clinical background, what would you say the the state of mental health is or um, even spiritual health to a degree, but mentally mostly um, in this country? Oh, it, it alarms me. I have felt like we have been moving toward uh, decay and mental illness. I hope that's not overstating it, but we have become mentally, emotionally, and relationally sick. And it has gotten to epidemic proportions, I believe, especially now that everybody's addicted to their cell phones. And most people don't know why, but one of the ways I can tell you as a clinical hypnotherapist that you induce hypnosis is something through something called eye fixation. When you stare at something, anything, uh, that's why classically in the movies you see a guy um, waving a watch and telling them to stare at it. He's, in, he's using eye fixation. Well, within 30 seconds for most men and a minute for most women of eye fixation, you start plunging down through the brain states to a state of hypnosis. And so people literally are walking through life hypnotized as they're looking to their phones. I call it brain dead. The scary thing is when you hit that level of self-hypnosis, you're highly suggestible. So anything you are looking at, you're probably going to believe and catalog, remember, and even if, if not consciously, subconsciously. And 
the problem with being hypnotized and time can roll by quickly. You can be on your phone for hours and it feel like minutes, not knowing really even what you've done. It's kind of uh, anesthetizing, um, numbing out your brain. The problem is it's it's cracking the very fiber of community, which is connection and relationship. When Bobby and I go out on a date, I almost have to put blinders on. It just drives me crazy to go out into a public place, especially a nice restaurant, and look in entire families or especially couples that are out on a date. They're looking at their own phones. They're not even talking to each other. Sometimes I'll even see them texting each other across the table rather than talking. I'm like, Put down your phones and talk. Uh, Christmas or two ago, my family went out to a nice dinner Christmas Eve. And I looked across and there was this huge round table of a family of 12 sitting at this round table. Round tables are perfect because then everybody can equally converse. All the way from what I imagine was a three or four year old uh, a couple small children to what I what looked like an 80-year-old grandma. Uh, 12 members, all of them were on their phones. No one was talking. <laughs> and I was so tempted to walk over and say, okay, uh, not my business, I know, but this is Christmas. Put down your damn phones. <laughs> you should have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I didn't think it would be the best Christmas present, especially to me. Um, so yeah. I didn't, but it just breaks my heart Bobby and Bree and I realized how sick our society came uh, has come to when we went to Ireland. It uh, we were over there for six weeks uh, when I was swimming the River Shannon. One of the things we very quickly noticed is none of the Irish were on their phones. And when I've told that to Americans, they're like, "Oh, I probably don't get good cell phone reception." No, they still have extremely strong family systems and the fabric of their culture is still very tightly woven and connected. Uh, One of the other things that I noticed is dads are highly connected. Uh, First couple times we walked by a playground, I saw a couple guys standing around. You see guys standing around a playground in America, you're like, okay, is this guy a creeper? No, I found out they're just dads. As a matter of fact, anytime we saw any kids walking in a group, even teens, there were one or two dads with them. And then they go to the pubs, even with their kids, and they all sit and talk and just have fun. On our way back, we were stuck in the airport at the ticket counter and we were afraid that we were going to miss our plane. And we had the Irish National Girls basketball team in front of us, which sounds just kind of funny in and of itself um, because they don't play a lot of basketball over there. But uh, the Irish Girls National Basketball Team. So we had about 25 late teens, early 20s uh, girls in front of us and their coaches weren't managing them at all and everybody in line behind them was getting angry and I was starting to get kind of frustrated and Bobby nudged me and she's like "Uh, you get kind of frustrated aren't you and I'm like yeah I think we're gonna miss our plane and she's like 
stop for just a moment and notice what you're witnessing. And I'm like, a bunch of bad coaches? And she's like, no, we got about 25 girls in front of us, not one of them's on their phone. And I stopped and I looked around and they're all, the reason it was taking so long is they're having such a good time talking and laughing with each other. And I, I thought, wow, that's brilliant, Bobby. And so it settled me down. As soon as we walked in, we landed back in Chicago. We knew we were in America because we walked in the airport and there's rows and rows of seats. Not one person looking up. Everybody's on their phone. Nobody's talking. And it was a heaviness we both felt. And so I, I am just really saddened and alarmed by what's happening in our culture. Um, not only with cell phones and disconnection, but nobody goes outside anymore, or very few do. Uh, when a person comes into my office, if I step one is getting them outside in a way that's fun and comfortable for them, if I can do that, they start to get better. Mm. Perfect. Let's keep talking about how okay. you handle clients. Um as a counselor, as a therapist. So step one is, you know, get them outside and, and get them outside. Feel comfortable is a big, big thing too, because, you know, some people don't want to go swim in a river. Some people right. would rather just go for a walk or something, but yeah, I, I've got a watercolorist that will just on rainy days as it is so often up here in the Pacific Northwest, she's got a back covered porch area and she'll just sit and breathe in the clean air and the negative ions and uh, take off her shoes and put her feet in the dirt um, and uh, watercolor the flowers or the shrubs. Uh, but if it's a nice day, she'll walk down to one of our beautiful rivers, find a nice place to just sit. And she said she came in not long ago laughing, and she's like, uh, I forgot my brushes. I'm like, what? So what did you use? She said, I realized, yeah, I love the painting aspect, but it's mostly just sitting watching and watching my whole body start to relax and open up. And that's what I find time and time again. As a matter of fact, one of the reasons I'm such a big believer in it is uh, when my leukemia went away, the lymphoma started getting really stubborn. It didn't go away. And you'd think both of them would, but it didn't. And it started getting worse, as a matter of fact. And my doctors wanted me to do chemo and radiation in 2015. And I said, I've been reading a lot about this eco-psychology. And, uh, you know, I'm single, don't want to do stupid stuff like chase women at this point. <laughs> and I'm still all alone. And uh, so I asked my question, what is the miracle in this? And the answer was, the miracle is... Uh, you, you've got a lot of free time, buddy, and you're in the Pacific Northwest, and for 30 years you've been homesick, so any night you want to, you can either be kayaking or hiking or whatever you want to do. And so I started taking Fridays off and backpacking after work with a headlamp way out into the wilderness, in the Mount Hood Wilderness area, and I discovered backpacking hammocks. And so, uh, you know, they, they're like little parachutes. They only weigh about a pound and 
easy to carry so you can get anywhere and they're not hard to put up all you have to do is find a couple trees or a couple big rocks and so i became fascinated with how i could just set up anywhere and instead of laying on rocks and trying to get comfortable i'm just swinging and looking at mount hood and watching the stars cross over all night it was so deeply relaxing and healing and so I started reading about something called forest bathing or uh, what the Japanese who were the ones to introduce it and start studying it called Yorin Shuku. And uh, I'm probably not saying that right at all, but uh, it's called forest bathing. And they found that uh, the pine and fir forests put out something that are it's really hard to measure, but they call it phytoncides. And as you breathe in these uh, chemicals that that come out of or emitted from the pine and the fir forest, that it boosts your immune system. And they'd had a lot of really good research with that. And so, and I was missing my deep connection by this time that I'd maintained or gained from the river with nature. And so I thought, I'm going to start going out every Thursday night and spending all night, if not two, because I got nothing to do, uh, just way about a mile or two off the trail, deep in the forest where no one can find me. And I'm just there by myself, watching the trees, reading, praying, meditating, watching Mount Hood, watching the stars at night. And I'm going to start doing that instead of chemo and radiation. And once again, the doctors are like, Dean, why do you come up with these ideas? Follow treatment protocol. And I said, well, I tell you what, Let's give it a six-month trial run, and I. how often do you want me to come in for blood tests? They're like, well, given where you're at right now, you probably better come in every two weeks to a month at the most, depending on what these look like. And so I started doing that in May of 2015. I got to admit, after the first couple blood tests, they just kept looking better. I'm like, I don't want to pay the money um, or take the time, and so I just dropped those. But uh, by March of 2016, my lymphoma was gone. And that's all I did was go out and just let my heart be soothed uh, by the woods. Um, oh, what's his name? The old man of the mountain in Yosemite. He, John Muir. John Muir. Yeah. He used to say, go out into the forest to wash your spirit clean. And, and that's exactly what it felt like every time. Uh, you know, I'd work a full week working with folks who are highly anxious or depressed or traumatized. And it would just kind of hang, their stuff would just kind of hang on me. I would go out there and with a couple hours, it just, I just feel it be soothed. And by the time I was walking out the next day, I just feel happy and light and free. And I thought, wow, this has got to be the most efficient, effective form of stress management as anything I could ever imagine. Hmm. No, so your physical health with cancer, lymphoma, and um, leukemia, how did that parallel your, like, your depression, your healing from that? 
almost entirely simultaneously as and and it's led me to just dean hall's crazy theory i don't think it's entirely crazy because there's a lot of surge that backs up i think and the my my percentages are probably what's crazy but this is instinctive and intuitively i believe that some of us just get poisoned we eat the wrong things or or we live in a house with lead or something or back there in that small town one of mary's funny stories was she and her cousin uh because her cousin's dad was a huge wheat farmer they in the 60s used to hold out uh, signs or flags to flag in the crop dusters and the crop dusters would dust right over them and they'd have to take a shower afterwards because they'd be white and they thought it was really funny and I said, did you wear face mask no nobody thought about that back then and both of them of course mary died of cancer her cousin struggled with breast cancer for years thankfully is in remission but everybody back there that grew up there during the 50s and 60s, the incidence of cancer is disproportionately high. So I think some people just get poisoned. I think the other 70% of us follow my life story. We just hold on to too much, think we're invincible, do too much, don't have any connection with nature or not enough, don't have any way to let our minds, bodies, and spirits decompress. And then they just either implode or explode, or both. Uh, I just really believe that the body is the most dynamically uh, efficient form of feedback. When we start to feel angry or any other thing, it's our body trying to get our attention and get us back on path. But we don't know that, so we think there's something wrong with us or the way we're behaving or feeling. And we try to change the feeling or the emotion or the psychological or spiritual state rather than listen to it and ask, what is this telling me? What kind of feedback is my body giving me? Because I was stressed out practically my whole life, but especially 30 years, you know, working two jobs, trying to get ahead, trying to do big things, Mm -hmm. and not ever listening to my body and knowing that it was trying to tell me to decompress routinely. Mm. Yeah. I love it. You are uh, just a ball of wisdom over here. (laughs) Or something. (laughs) I've been kind of just jumping around these questions. Um, And I'm giving an awful lot. Do you want me to be more brief? Not at all. Um, I'm sitting over here as as an editor over here just listening to the whole story, but also thinking in okay, you know, we can pull that, how pull things this. feed together. And good. we are on a very good track right good. now, I'll say. Um, uh, there's not much rhyme or reason to these. Doesn't need to um, be for me. But there's a question that I have. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if it was me. It might have been Olivia or one of the others, but I'll, I'll take credit for this one. Please do. Um, so what about your next journey not why are you doing it, but what are you healing now? Wow. 
what am I healing now? Or are you, or is it less about your healing? Because the the question came because you talked about how the first time you did the Willamette, you were healing Mm -hmm. yourself. Mm -hmm. When you did the River Shannon, you were more, you were healing yourself, but you were also healing your daughter, you mentioned. Right. Um, So maybe talk about how you saw the River Shannon heal your daughter in some way or to which degree. And then, yeah, the, the first river, the Willamette was such an amazing, joyful time. And one of the things I didn't mention is my 79 year old father. When you swim a river, you can see about 10 feet ahead and about a half a mile ahead, but danger is always about 30 yards ahead. So you need somebody, uh, usually in a kayak that's guiding you through and keeping you safe. And uh, leave it to my adventurer father, even at 79, he's like, man, don't feel obligated, Dean, but I would be honored and thrilled if you would let me be your guide boater. (laughs) I said, what? He's like, yeah. And I said, but dad, you've never kayaked before. And he's like, not a problem. And I said, but dad, uh, it's 187 miles. Not a problem. Okay, let's do this. And so we did. And it was just this beautiful journey, not only uh, on the river, but between us. It was like a rite of passage, 30 years too late, but never too late. And I saw the dynamics that happened between us and how the river was a healing journey for us as men. But then uh, it just gave us such an intimate connection uh, with each other as well as with nature. I wanted that for my daughter. And so we started looking around the Lymphoma Leukemia Society said, boy, Dean, you need to take your message internationally. So the next river, because I was already talking about, man, I got to do this again. And they said, find a river outside the U.S. Well, immediately I started looking over at the U.K. because I loved it over there so much. And my dad's grandmother, my great grandmother was from Ireland. And so many of the kids in my suburb of Portland, we were either first or second generation Americans because Portland looks so much like the UK and like Western Europe. We had a lot of Germans and a lot of English, a lot of Scots, a lot of Irish, and uh, either they were our parents or our grandparents. And so I'd heard about Ireland a lot and always fantasized about going there. Well, I found the longest river in the British Isles is the River Shannon. It splits Ireland almost neatly between west and east, right down the center from north to south. And I watched a couple documentaries on it, and it looked a lot like the Willamette. So I thought, this is perfect. And uh, this time, I'll take my daughter to afford this same kind of healing dynamic for her. She needs, because I'd put her through, so she lost her mom, then her dad goes crazy, so she kind of loses her dad too. And this happened when she was a senior, Mary died October of her senior year in high school. Mm-hmm. And so, hold on for a second. What's up, Steve? Dean, Steve. Hey, nice to meet you. Around the corner is my wife, Bobby. <laughs> Do you need to get stuff out of the kitchen for a bit? Uh, yeah. All right, we'll take it. We'll take it five ten minutes. All right, we're back from a little break there, 
And did you fully finish your thought around? I don't think so. Yeah. So like, what was it about that trip looking back on it that was healing for her? Well, what I, what I wanted for her is just time on the water because I have become absolutely convinced, even when you read anecdotal things or even poetic things going back practically to time immemorial, that uh, the water is healing, soothing, calming. It does something, I believe, to not only our mind but our spirit just being in that fluid nature. And so I just wanted her to be on the water. And she's always up for a new adventure because I raised her. And so we went over there. But more importantly, ever since she was about two or three, I've been fascinated with this idea of rites of passage. Again, because I'm kind of a history nerd, Almost every culture throughout time has had a rite of passage. But our culture, one of the things that's unwoven from the fabric of families and culture in our society is this idea that our kids need some kind of rite of passage that will bridge them into adulthood. About the closest we have now is maybe high school or college graduations or maybe when a person gets married, but those really don't have some of the foundational practices that a rite of passage have. Um, uh, Foundational practices and rites of passage is some kind of adventure, some kind of prolonged time, either by yourself out in nature or with a guide or a parent, Uh, A time where there's a generational shift from uh, the parent being the leader to now the child either leading him or herself or the child becoming the leader. And definitely uh, one of the foundations is hardship, something that involves uh, struggle. And I thought uh, this adventure of a long river swim would certainly include every one of those foundations for us quietly without me even having to tell Bray, well, this is the start of your adulthood. Uh, You know, I'm not going to do that, but I'm going to invite her hoping this turns out well for her. And very quickly, uh, I was afraid that I was spending $12,000 of my own money just to show how Uh, just to show my new wife because I'd fallen in love again with Bobby and we'd gotten married in December of 2016 and this was June of 2017. So I'd spent $12,000, brought my new bride and my daughter who was emerging into adulthood because she was 24 at the time, how to fail. (laughs) That's what I was pretty sure I was going to do because it was so much harder than I could ascertain having never been there just on looking at information on the internet. One of the things I didn't know is because it doesn't happen every year, but it's fairly typical. I should have found out uh, that, of course, it flows from north to south. 
And during June is their windy season. The winds come off of the ocean from south to north. So out of the 25 days it took me to swim the entire length, 23 of those days, we had a 10 mile an hour or more headwind. And there was no current. I didn't know. I knew basically there were a lot of lakes. I didn't know it was pretty much just a system of lakes. So there was no flow to kind of push me along. So I had to just scrape for every inch of the entire, it ended up being a little more than 150 miles, but it made the Willamette swim look like a cakewalk. It it was incredibly difficult. The beautiful thing was my daughter saw me suffer. She suffered. It was tough, especially that first week. But as we kept going, things started to happen. The first was, you know, Irish, uh, the Ireland is a small country. And uh, the Irish heard that we were not working for the Leukemia Lymphoma Society as I originally had planned. Life took a hold in a series of events and the Leukemia Lymphoma Society, the local chapter, uh, their management had totally changed unbeknownst to me. None of them had even known I'd swum the Willamette in only a couple years. And uh, none of them knew who I was, nor seemed to care, didn't want to work with me on a fundraiser at all. At first, I thought I, I was just totally depressed and thought this is the worst thing that possibly could happen. But once again, that reboot question that seems to work wonderfully for me, what is the miracle in this? So I started asking that. Within a couple of days, I realized... This is perfect. I'm going to this beautiful uh, land, swimming this wonderful river. Why would I be an ugly American and take the money out of the country? So I started looking for a cancer foundation over in Ireland that would work with me. And I found the Childhood Cancer Foundation of Ireland. It was really just uh, a set of five moms who each had a child with cancer herself and found there was very limited support for parents and children with cancer. And so on their own, they'd worked tirelessly for about three years previously uh, to create a bigger, stronger network. And uh, they were wonderful. They thought I was a little nuts. I think at first they thought I was on a suicide mission. Uh, but once they realized, no, this guy knows what he's doing, and a couple other folks took him aside and said he's done it before, he, he's, he's not totally crazy, even though he may seem so. And uh, we got so much media over there. Didn't raise as much money as I would have liked, but uh, we got so much media, the ladies cried and they said, before you came, Dean, no one knew who we were. After you're done, everyone knows who we are. And so that was a beautiful thing that happened. The other thing that happened is uh, since we were raising money for their kids, people just came out of the woodwork. One lady who's now become a, a fast family friend, I was in her wedding afterwards, took a full month off just to manage me. And she partnered with the uh, 
uh, Inland Waterways Association, a, a boating association that's uh, a very strong community in Ireland to make sure that I had a cruiser, a 50-foot yacht in front of me every day for the last two or three weeks of the swim. And so the swim at first seemed absolutely impossible. And we saw two huge 23-mile lakes that were about 18 miles wide. And uh, we knew several people drown on them every year. We thought, how are we going to get through these? I saw these looming all of a sudden. And this is what happens when you have the courage to follow your dream. Always at first, it's terrifying. And it seems like there's no way, like it's entirely impossible. But if you just take one step at a time and keep moving, sooner or later, something happens. And it's like the universe just rolls out a red carpet. And I tell everybody, the uh, the first swim was about the river. The second swim was about the river of people. We met the Irish. We fell in love with the Irish. But uh, Bree, my daughter and I, I saw her heel. At least I thought that was what was going on. But she's kind of private. But here just a couple months ago, she sat and told me that's when her healing really began. And that's when her adulthood really began. She's always wanted to be a writer. She's always been very good at it. And that's when she decided she wasn't going to be reasonable and just get a job teaching. She was going to become a writer. And she's done that. Uh, She's written uh, three novels and uh, done her first nonfiction here just recently that hasn't been published yet about our swim on the Shannon. And so I'm so glad that she recorded that. But the one thing she said that I felt was fairly poignant, which shows me that uh, I was blessed to uh, show her this and be able to teach this, and it effectively accomplished that rite of passage. She says, you know, Dad, when I get scared and times are hard, I remember the swim, and I just take the next step, and I put my head down, and I realize, yeah, it's hard. Life's hard. Going for your dreams hard, but you just don't quit. And so, uh, yeah, that that swim was for me really about setting my daughter up to have a successful, what I believe, a healthy adulthood and and heal from losing her mom. Mm. Very wise, and you're able to see what she really needs. It's not necessarily financial security, which is important for sure. Something that, you know, a lot of people, at least in this area, talk about is like, your parents just want the best for you, right? Right. So that's why they tell you to go get a job and go follow this like trodden down path that everybody goes on. Right. But it sounds like with maybe that's something that your parents being a little against the grain, how they raised you, you probably also thought for yourself. I'm putting words in your mouth here, but like, what is it about you that had the the wherewithal to like give your daughter daughter that experience i think it was from being broken um you know my parents being of the generation they were they really taught me uh the joy of adventure and the courage it takes and what to accomplish that because one of the things i didn't tell you is even though my dad was a busy executive he's run most of the world's major marathons he's climbed all of the 
peaks on the West Coast, Mount Hood like 20 or 30 times, Rainier probably too many times to count. Uh, so he was quite an adventurer, but being of the generation that they were, they taught you work hard, you pile up a mountain of money, you really sacrifice yourself in your life, and then sometime off in the distance when you're 65, you stop and you start enjoying life and really living. When Mary died, uh, we'd been married almost 30 years, and we bought that myth that what I call commercialistic myth, where you're a good consumer and a good worker bee, and you work your ass off to have a bunch of things and a lot of money and a nice house and nice cars, and so that if you're really successful, you retire somewhere in your 50s. Well, so we'd worked extremely hard, been very, very responsible financially. And we were starting, I turned 50 the year she died. And the fruits were starting to really pay off. We were starting to have way more money than we needed. We were starting to put it in all the right places that we had scrimped and saved and already done. But now it was just really flowing. Good days were ahead. We were laughing at that time, a couple months before she was diagnosed, because when we got together, no one had bucket lists in 1980, but we made what we called a have-to list. We have to do these 20 things. And out of those 20 things, guess how many we had done when she had died? Two? Yeah, two. <laughs> two out of 20. Not a good record. And uh, I made the mistake the day after for her funeral. And I don't even know if I can even talk about this because usually I can't to pull out that list because I thought, how many of these things did I do with Mary? And I pulled out the list and I started writing down what I'll never get to do with Mary. I called it what I'll never do with Mary list. And it just broke my heart because it, 18 out of 20 things. And, and they were easy things, simple things that most people do, like go to Hawaii. No, we were going to save that money. We were going to be responsible. I could work harder during the summers, especially when I was a teacher. It, it was silly. And so it shattered this, what I believe, myth of a consumeristic society that you have to be responsible in order to have a successful life or you have to build up material wealth in order to be a good member of society. I believe now the most reasonable and responsible thing you can do is not drop out of life, but identify your dream and then work hard to accomplish that. Because what I've come to believe is, and this is my own spiritual belief, that inside of each of us, that we're all created different, each of us has a dream. And that dream is our instinct. And that instinct is just like a goose 
to fly south for the winter. Uh, your dream is not my dream, but if you follow your dream, you'll meet the people you need to meet, do the things you need to do to be the person you need to be. And if we all do that, it all works. I got really fascinated about this way before I ever got sick. In 2005 is when it started rolling around. Oh my gosh, if we just follow our dreams, I wonder if everybody has a dream and I wonder if they could articulate it. And so in my private practice, I asked 50 clients the first session, 50 in a row, the first session, what are your hopes and dreams? My hypothesis was I maybe would have 10% that could tell me because of their anxiety or their brokenness. But guess how many out of 50, and some I had to push for a minute or two. No, one time you had a dream. What is it? Guess how many? Like 40? 47. Wow. And out of those, and here's where that uh, consumer myth started to shatter for me. Out of those 47, guess how many had what I call an American dream? Like, I want more money, a bigger house, a better car. Small percentage. Only two. Wow. Everyone had a dream and it was very articulate and it was very unique. And the more I'd get to know the person, the more I'd think as I looked at their dream, that makes perfect sense. If you did this, everything would work for you. Yeah. And so that's when that started playing around in my mind. And that was part of the impetus to when I was dying thinking, no, Purpose and power, going back to Viktor Frankl's work, Man's Search for Meaning, uh, knowing that purpose is the dynamic that can get you through anything, and knowing I didn't have one. Also knowing that somewhere down there, there had to still be a dream beyond, I, I think my dream had always been to be Mary's husband. And I daily was accomplishing that and thrilled with it. Some people would call it codependency. More, it was just I was in love and she was great. So, uh, but that dream could no longer be exhibited or, uh, you know, fulfilled. So I had to come up with Dean's dream. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like a kind of, I, I see this a lot. Like if you're born in 1994, like me you're going to be able to have the way that the external world works. Like you can have dreams that someone in the 1800s never would have had. Right. Like someone, as Seth Godin, he said, uh, I'm a, can I like, you know, he does this canoeing counseling stuff where he goes and teaches kids how to mm. canoe and stuff. And he's Perfect. like, if they had never invented the canoe, I'd still be doing what I want to do, which is add value. It sounds like kind of similar to you add value to the people around me in some other fashion. So like, it sounds like you, Mary was that first thing that you grabbed onto and you almost went to a deeper level to find a deeper level of what your dream is. If, if that, like from my perspective, that's just, I'm just thinking aloud. Right oh yeah. Now. Yeah. I, I, I'd never thought about it like that, Kyle. I think that's perfect. Um, <clears throat> my parents were the only married people I knew that seemed really happy. <laughs> they just adored each other. And it wasn't perfect. But even when it wasn't perfect, it was pretty perfect with how they'd uh, handle it. 
And uh, they were the only couple I knew that were co-adventurers. And they just kind of fit. My dad's real gregarious, a tough guy, man's man, uh, total male. My mom is strong and quiet and very articulate, extremely thoughtful. My dad will blurt stuff out. My mom, you know, she's run it through the filter about four times before she says it. And they just fit. And I remember walking behind them on the trail and they're laughing and dad's chasing mom trying to grab her rear or something. (laughs) And she's like, Oh, stop. And, uh, I just remember thinking that's love. And I want that someday. That's all I really wanted was to be a husband and have a good marriage and build a family. And the rest were just kind of details. And when I was robbed from that, Uh, that was robbed from me, I realized that's kind of an external almost goal or dream. And I need to go, I I was so, the, the good part about being broken and shattered is that you're broken wide open. And so I needed to go deep. Well, when you're broken, it's not as hard to go deep because it's all laying out there on the floor. And I needed to sift through the rubble and find out what Dean's dream really is. And it came. And I've found time and time again with people in my office, if they will just ask the question within a couple days, couple weeks, longest it's ever taken usually is a couple months, they'll, something will come to mind. And almost always at first, it seems crazy and impossible. But with each of the people I've worked with, and then with me myself, there are earmarks throughout your entire life that point to that dream. For me, my parents, we'd go on hikes, end up at these alpine lakes. And starting at about eight or nine, they'd look at this lake and they'd say, Dean, but you can't swim across that whole thing. And until about a couple years ago, I always thought back and laughed and felt really proud because I'd swim, yeah, I can, swim across it, come back, and they'd cheer and pat me on the back and tell me I was a stud. Only a couple years ago, I realized I was so ADD and talked nonstop. It was probably the only moment they could get quiet and they didn't tell me. That's hilarious. (laughs) And so there were earmarks. And then going all the way back to 84, when I actually said, I'm going to swim the Willamette. And then because I was trying to be reasonable and responsible, I shoved it aside. Um, And so there were earmarks throughout every, and every time I'd come out to Oregon, I'd swim a portion of a river or across a lake. Uh, I was, I think, one of the first to swim across Crater Lake. In 1987, I got permission from the head ranger to swim across Crater Lake uh, from the boat dock. And I'll have to tell you that story sometime. It's kind of funny. Um, And the people at the boat dock got scared that I was committing suicide because somebody had uh, just a couple weeks before jumped off the crater cliffs. And uh, so there there were about 50 people waiting for the lorry 
and to take a boat ride and half of them were screaming that, you know, I'm crazy. The other half were on my dad's side and screaming at those people saying, no, he's just a badass. And this huge fight was happening on land that I didn't even know about when I came back because I wasn't wearing a wetsuit or anything. It was probably in the mid to low 50s. Well, people that aren't used to water would really be alarmed. And the guy running the boat dock is saying, he's going to die of hypothermia and the lake's over a thousand feet deep. We won't ever even find his body. And and so Mary was there, a little Kansas girl. She's crying. All this drama is happening. I'm just having the best swim of my life because the water is so pure and so clean. I could see all the uh, light refract down into the deep blue. It was just beautiful. I pulled back up. Uh, onto the deck and people are either cheering me and patting me on the back or screaming at me and you know I'm just like what what's going on and uh, there's a ranger there who's going to give me a $500 ticket for swimming without permission and I'm like no call the head ranger I, I had permission and and it was just all this drama but from then on as a joke Anytime we'd pass any any body of water, my dad would look at it because what I'd said, he's like, well, why do you want to swim Crater Lake? And I'm like, because I don't think anybody's done it. And it's doable. It's doable. And so he's like, it's doable. What does that even mean? And so uh, from then on, as a joke, anytime we were anywhere, uh, even if he was in Europe, he'd send me back a picture of a body of water. It's doable, Dean. And so... <laughs> Once I came to this idea, even though it sounded crazy, there were little kind of, uh, what would you call it? Um, breadcrumbs or something like what's that? that? Breadcrumbs. Yeah, breadcrumbs uh, all along my life saying, this is where I should go. This is who I am. This is what I should be doing or could be doing or was even made to do. Mm. Yeah. Many people now ask me, well, you know, especially as an active cancer patient, how could you swim hours and hours and hours a day? Because many marathon swimmers get really bored and they'll sing a song again and again. Or I met one marathon swimmer, the guy who swam the Shannon second. And he says he just rehearses his favorite movies and watches those. And I think this is how life prepared me Uh, Number one, I've been doing mindfulness meditation for over 20 years, but also to me, being there in the moment, even though it may be boring, having been through what I've been through, I'm not dying of cancer. I'm not in a hospital. I'm not at my wife's funeral. I'm here in a river doing this thing, uh, connecting with the river it never gets boring to me. So I think not only did I have a dream, but life groomed me to be able to do these things. Very, very well said. And I can relate to that as well. Going to school in Indiana for four years, three and a half years. um, I just, growing up as a kid, my dad would take me outside. We'd go do stuff as a family, go on a hike or go on a road trip or something, but I didn't fully appreciate it until I went out to Indiana <laughs> and I was like, what's going on? I can't go outside if I want to in yeah, the winter yeah. time. So every time I would come home, then I would 
just all I'd want to do is ski or hike or oh, go yeah. outside or something. So it, it, there is some definite, definite truth to like when you go through a struggle or when you're deprived of something and you really understand and appreciate what it is to have that thing. It sounds like, um, yeah, I mean, maybe that other marathon swimmer, you know, he's just like trying to find a way to stick it out in there. Like, right. But you're fully engaged and enjoying it, I would almost say more so, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, like, more deeply. I'm right. writing a book right now, and the working title is From Goal Setting to Soul Setting. Mm -hmm. And the difference between a goal and a dream is usually a goal is something that you want to do for more money, more fame, more glory. It's about you. But a dream, everybody that I've ever seen really go for a dream, even uh, many of the big sports icons, it turns out really not to be about them, but to add service and value to others. And as I did this, really, I didn't, especially the Willamette Swim, I didn't do it for me. I wanted my daughter to have a legacy. I wanted to inspire other cancer patients. And so even the times I was tired and didn't want to go on, I, I, I was doing it for them and that carried me further and continues to do so. If I was doing it to just create, you know, I still got the world record on these things, which is kind of nice, but that, I would have still done it. It doesn't really matter about that to me. And I'm finding that anytime anybody accesses their true path and their dream, they become secondary and they find beauty in that. So let's go to your next big dream. <laughs> My next big dream. Yeah. Already, um, already working on it. First of all, why do you believe you're capable of this? journey? I don't believe it's about me. I believe we're all capable of just about anything. I believe one of the biggest mistakes we've made, especially, and it's the, the fabric is starting to tear on this belief system that we are limited as human beings. And there are a lot of adventurers, even like Colin O'Brady, who trekked solo, first guy to do a solo trek, carrying all of his own supplies uh, last winter across Antarctica. Everybody said that was impossible. And his hashtag is be possible. And he's proving time and time again, that, as well as many others are, that if you're not thinking about your limits, you can find a way to accomplish it. And I believe there are very few limits, even for a guy like me. I mean, I've never been on a swim team. I've never won a swim race. I'm a pretty capable swimmer, but a lot of people could do what I believe, could do what I've done and probably faster, but that's really not the point. Uh, I believe I can do this one, because uh, many people would look at this kind of thing as suffering. And given the experience I've had of suffering, 
Um, to me, this is just kind of a joyous celebration and journey. Oh, yeah, part of the journey is going to be painful and hard, but that's okay. You accept that as part of this. I think I can do it because I think I can do it. Do you believe the river has a spirit of its own? A lot of people have asked me, especially about the Willamette, as I've talked about Mama River, because I still call her that, because she brought me back to life. And when I was swimming in it, as crazy as it sounds, because it absolutely does not coincide with the religious views that I was raised with and uh, the paradigm about life that I had before that swim, it felt like I wasn't alone. And the more I swam in the Willamette, the more I understood why I'd always intuitively called her Mama River, because I felt like I was being nursed and nurtured. I felt like I was constantly, after about the fifth or sixth day, being comforted. And it was something I couldn't even tell my parents at the time. It was an odd emotional and spiritual experience that was entirely solitary because uh, I, I really, I felt it so deeply, but I didn't have words for it. I literally, people would be like, they, one of the most common questions is, Dean, how do you get up and get back in this ice cold river every day? Because what a lot of people that aren't from the Pacific Northwest know, a lot of them don't know, it's entirely, the Willamette's entirely from ice melt. Uh, snow melt. And so it's cold, especially early summer. How do you get up and do that day in and day out? And I just kind of chuckle and laugh. I'd say, well, I just remind myself I'm not in a hospital. But what I really wanted to tell them is I can't wait because it's the one time where I feel comforted and feel like I'm not alone and feel like I'm literally in someone's arms. And after about day six, I call them river whispers. I didn't audibly hear anything, but it's like I heard something bubble up from my heart. And I can't really explain it because it. people are like, oh, Dean, that was just you. Well, maybe, but it sure didn't feel like it because they weren't thoughts or in a voice that felt like me. They felt entirely separate from me, and it felt like the river was talking to me. And I know that makes me sound either like a hippie or crazy, but at this point, I don't mind being a crazy hippie. So, <laughs> you know, it's uh, not to cut you off, yeah, but no, I think it's funny it. how when someone asks you like a deep question very casually, like on Instagram or at right. a family dinner or something, you have your programmed response, right? right? You have your, Hey, yeah, I'm better than a hospital bed. Right. Which right. is true. Right. But like, I guess my question is, do you think nature or people's experience outdoors can help us communicate on a more deep level in the sense of, for me, it, I hear you talk about that and I, I'm getting chills. Cause I'm thinking, yeah, I've had the same thing happen to me in the mountains on the beach out at Shy Shy beach. And wasn't a river necessarily, but you have the, these feelings that come over you and it's, I, yeah, I could, I don't think it's crazy or hippie thing at all for me because I have a shared experience with you. So do you think that not to put words in your mouth, but speak towards like how the outdoors brings us together 
in terms of how we communicate and understand each other. Yeah, I'm glad you shared that, Kyle, because I think you're entirely right. And as we read about cultures, especially indigenous ones, this was a staple part of their culture, talking to the wind, um, feeling uh, Mother Earth, and uh, participating as an equal member of creation rather than one that's what I call a prima donna of reproduction. We need to take ourselves. Hey, hey, we're almost done. And also, um, through my limited research, these rites of passage that a lot of cultures have almost always involve leaving the normal day-to-day community, going right. to the mountains, like right. going with the, with the village leader to right. or whatever, and, you know, whether it involves... got to be yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, some sort of change right. um, of setting. That's definitely, definitely crucial. I've, I'm a huge proponent of travel being a oh, gosh, thing yeah. to grow through and if you're if you're traveling and you're not actively trying to improve yourself through that you're just wasting your money right like. or what i see americans doing they've almost started treating the world as disneyland okay i'm in ireland dance a jig or right. i'm in france put on a beret yeah, you know, I'm in Germany. Put on a what yeah, leader hose. Yeah, leader hose. Yeah, yeah, it's like, it's, it's silly. And <laughs> when we were in Dublin, right before we left, I got so angry. There was a, a group of Americans about my age, and they were talking about how much fun they'd had in Ireland. And it was just, yeah, I saw this and I saw that, and I bought a green scarf. And then it came time for them to pay the bill, and they're in this really cool pub mm-hmm. that's been there hundreds of years. And Bree had known about it, so she took us there. And we're sitting there, and uh, there's about five or six of them, and they wanted to have the waitress uh, split the bill among their credit cards. And she didn't; she'd never heard of that. And they were just really derisive toward her for never hearing of that. So she went and got her manager, and he's like, no, we, we can't do that. And they just threw a shit fit. I almost stood up and say, you know, this is why we're called ugly Americans. You're in Ireland. You are going to have to respect Respect their ways. And they just didn't get it. Totally. And and it, it was very obvious to me. They thought they were in the it's a small world after all portion of Disney. Mm -hmm. You know, and I'm like, God. Yeah, no, I hear that so much now. It's like people, they travel somewhere and they think that because they're paying for something that the service is all servant service for them, right? Yeah. I saw it in Nepal. I saw it in Thailand. Like, Really? It's Yeah, it's like if you go to a country, your number one thing should be respect the local people there. When I walk into somewhere, I'm like, even a restaurant, I'm like, yeah. where do I sit? Like, I don't want to like piss anyone off. Yeah. Like, I'm just here yeah. to just like observe you guys and, you know, like I say thank you probably way too much and right. like... Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, (laughs) Brie and I were talking that it was so cool to travel by doing this swim because we got to know all the locals and we got to share our stories and have them share with us. And we we weren't tourists anymore, but we were tourists 
and all these other people, you know, just drive up on a bus, run out, take a bunch of pictures, you know, grab a shamrock or what uh, Bree's Irish friends call diddly D stuff, and then get back, go off, say they've seen Ireland. They haven't talked to one Irish person. Mm-hmm. So let's wrap it up. I think we have just nailed this interview okay. in general. Um, yeah. Did I talk about... I, one thing I haven't said is I'm turning 60 next year. And so part of the reason I want to do this is to show that when you have a dream, as long as you have a dream, you're not old. One of the things that's really important to me is... Uh, to spend the rest of my time on earth living fully and vibrantly. And I don't think you can do that unless you're chasing what I call an impossible dream. I think you're going to inspire a lot of people. I sure hope so. I think, uh, you know, when people see that something can be done, it's different than just hearing, oh, some person on the other side of the world. Like if, if your followers on Instagram, your family, your extended family, like those people that know you're a real person, you know, and the fact that you're turning 60 and you're doing this, like it's, uh, I think it's timely for sure for you and for the, for the river as well. I hope so. One of the reasons you made a good point. One of the reasons I do these things is because in the self-help field, there are a lot of wonderful authors and I could name several that are my age maybe just a little bit older, a little younger. And with their knowledge and wisdom, it seems like their spiritual strength and their emotional psychological strength should lead naturally to physical strength. And you look at them and they're 50 pounds overweight and kind of dumpy and probably would have a hard time walking across our front yard. And I'm like, there's a dissonance there that doesn't, it, it seems disconnected. It, it doesn't seem practical. And then you've got these badass adventurers, uh, but they're seeing really aggressive or even violent things that are a part of toxic masculinity. I think as we grow and learn, it should be evidenced in every area of our life, body, mind, and spirit. And so if you're growing spiritually, I think it should be deeply reflect, reflected in your physical pursuits as well. I honestly believe we can have it all. And all three, body, mind, and spirit, go together. Right. Absolutely. I learned that in Nepal, studying the Buddhist and the Hindu cultures. Exactly. They've... There originally it was all about just sitting and being meditative and these things. And then I, I don't know the names of some of these folks, but there was a guy on Rogan's podcast talking about it recently. KZA is a rapper and he's mm. saying how he's realized and through some of these teachings, it's just as important to have the physical health as exactly. the mental and the spiritual health. <clears throat> so you have to have a balance of both of those things. And I think you do represent both, um, both sides of those really well. I hope to, because I could write a book like this one I'm writing from goal setting to soul setting. But if I'm just another old man sitting on a couch, it it lacks credibility to me. And maybe it's just because of the people I was raised by. So last question. This is just one that I've asked on my podcast, everyone so far, but has nothing to do with this. But what advice would you give yourself as an 18 year old? What advice would I give myself? 
to do two things. Just live life by following an impossible dream, not worrying what everybody else says about this pursuit or this dream, even if they say it's entirely an irresponsible way to live life. And then secondly, get out of when it comes to big decisions. My daughter and I were just talking about this yesterday. When it comes to big decisions, don't make them uh, mentally as much as heart-centered. Uh, listen to your heart and see how it feels um, before you just plunge ahead. And I call it the sweet spot. What I've learned to do in any decision is see if I'm equally terrified. Wow, this is way too big. I don't know if I could accomplish this or buy this or go for this or whatever. And excited. I still look for that area where every cell in my body just kind of jumps and my heart leaps and I get a grin on my face. I, if you're right in between the two and people try to either be one way or the other and use that as their guideline. I think you need to be squarely between both of those. But all of my life, I was taught, make a pros and cons list, be reasonable, be responsible. And if it's not working, gut it out and make it work. And my daughter and I were talking, that's so head-centered that when I just try to push my way through usually didn't turn out too well. And if you're more fluid in following your pursuits, especially if you're following a big dream, it all just kind of works out. Well said, Dean. Appreciate it very much. We're going to stop recording here and uh, have some lunch. Perfect. Just awesome. Fun. Awesome. 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 Awesome.